While there's a great need for ventilators all over the country, there might be a greater need for respiratory therapists who are mostly in charge of operating them. It's basically what the military would have to do in a tent during a war where they don't really have the same kind of personnel they would normally have. They've got corpsmen and other people that are filling in temporarily. There's been a lot of talk about the shortages of ventilators, but what about the people who operate them? Today we're talking about what ventilators actually do, what it takes to run one of them, and what kinds of special treatment COVID-19 patients need when they're on one of these machines. From News at Northeastern, this is Litmus, a conversation with Northeastern University's groundbreaking researchers. We connect what's going on in their labs to what's going on in your life. We're News at Northeastern reporters Emily Arnson and Aria Bracci. So I am Dr. Tom Barnes. I'm a registered respiratory therapist, and I am the head faculty member for the Master of Science in Respiratory Care Leadership. So right off the bat, before we get into anything else, can you explain what a ventilator does and how it works? A ventilator breathes for you when you can't do it yourself. And what we find with the COVID-19 patients is they gradually reach a point where the work of breathing is too much for them to do. This is what a healthy lung sounds like. And this is what a serious case of COVID-19 sounds like. So at that point, either the respiratory therapist or the critical care physician hooks them up to the ventilator, and it provides a controlled concentration of oxygen. It controls the size of the breath and how many breaths a minute they'll receive. Okay. And so for people who aren't familiar with what a ventilator looks like, can you explain how it is hooked up to the patient and what the mechanics are that go into a piece of machinery like this? Well, the control panel looks like the console on, if you've ever been in a small airplane, it's got an LCD monitor on the front that has three different waveforms. You probably have seen an electrocardiogram with the ECG going across the screen. In this case, there are, there are three tracings going across the screen, one for the size of the breath being delivered, one for the flow rate for the gas going in, how fast is the gas going in, and then you get another that's the pressure generated with each breath. And the people working with ventilators have to be aware of how to monitor those waveforms and adjust the ventilator accordingly. The ventilator is going to be connected to a breathing circuit that goes between the ventilator and the patient's endotracheal tube. Endotracheal tubes are the plastic tubes that go down your throat to bring air in and out of the lungs. And the gas will go to the endotracheal tube, into the patient's lung, and then back out the endotracheal tube and through an exhalation valve, which will have a filter on it, which is very important with COVID patients, because you don't want any exhaled airborne particles from the patient's breathing to go back into the intensive care unit where the patient is. Yeah, can you explain that a little bit more? So when the breath comes out, where does it go? It's going back into the air in the intensive care unit, but it's filtered. One of the filters that's most commonly used is made by a company called Paul, P-A-L-L, and they filter out 99.9% of any airborne bacteria, or in this case, virus. By putting it through the Paul filter, then when the air comes back into the intensive care unit, no one's contaminated from that air. So a COVID patient is actually safer for the staff once they're intubated because the air coming out of their lungs is being filtered. And can you explain what the intubation process is or how patients get hooked up to these machines? 
That means putting a tube about as big as your thumb in diameter through your mouth, down through your hypolarynx, into your trachea. In other words, through your voice box and into your windpipe. And then it goes down to about an inch or two between where the, your right and left lungs split off. So it sits in the trachea and there's a cuff on the tube that you inflate it. So when the gas goes out of the endotracheal tube, it can't go backwards and come back out the mouth. It all has to go in through the tube and out through the tube. That sounds like a really complicated process to be able to get the tube to connect to the lungs. So how many people does it take to finish that process and what kind of expertise do you need to have to know how to do that? Yeah, the people that do it most often are anesthesiologists because every time they do a major surgery, someone will put a tracheal tube in you. And the other people that will do intubations are the critical care physicians working in the intensive care unit and then emergency physicians working in the emergency department. But also registered respiratory therapists as part of their training are taught to put tracheal tubes in patients. So depending upon the workload, and the workload is huge right now, there's basically a not enough critical care physicians in the ICU. The healthcare workers in coronavirus hotspots are exhausted. Hundreds are sick themselves. And while there are concerns about protective gear and life-saving equipment, another shortage looms, the staff themselves. So what other types of special training do the respiratory therapists need and how long does it usually take for someone to become qualified to do this? The minimum amount of education you would, be, would be two years. The uh, National Organization for Respiratory Therapists has come out and said they want all respiratory therapists to have, at a minimum, a baccalaureate degree by 2030. So Northeastern has just started a very innovative program within the last week or two where someone can come out of an associate degree respiratory therapy program. They can come to Northeastern, and the program is 100% online, so they can come into the online program and get a BS in health sciences in a couple of years. And then with one additional year, they can get a master's degree in respiratory care. There are about 72,000 registered therapists working in acute care hospitals as we speak. And there's 150,000 that are licensed, but many of those people are working in education like I am, or they're retired. Right now, if we don't have you know, years to complete some kind of training program, what are nurses doing right now to adapt to the current situation? You would logically think, well, if there's not enough respiratory therapists in an ICU, then the critical care nurse is going to step in and manage the ventilator. The thing is, they're not taught how to take care of ventilators in their nursing programs, and they, they might pick up some of the skills by, you know, working in the ICU for a number of years. The other thing is a, a critical care nurse really only can handle about two intensive care unit patients at one time. And what we're seeing with the number of patients in the ICU doubling and tripling, now instead of taking two patients, the critical care nurse is having to manage four or five. So they're, they're really having their hands full just doing the nursing responsibilities that they normally can do without taking the place of a therapist. Yeah, and I'm just trying to wrap my head around that number. How many of these respiratory therapists do you think are in any given hospital at a time? Yeah, well, you got to keep in mind that respiratory therapists are a 24-7 type of person, so they're there seven days a week around the clock, so it takes more of them. So it varies from one hospital to the next, depending upon the size of the medical center or the size of the hospital. If you were to go to a community hospital that has maybe 200 beds, you might find a department with only 20 respiratory therapists in it, which normally they can handle the load, and normally they would have enough ventilators. 
But what we're seeing is the patients that are that come in with COVID and end up in the ICU, almost 100% of them end up on a ventilator. So the number of patients that the respiratory department has to take care of has doubled or tripled. And uh, of course, they have the same staff that they've had right along. And some therapists are coming out of retirement and joining the department temporarily. Some respiratory therapy schools where they had students that were going to graduate in June or July are, are letting them graduate early so they can enter the workforce early to help out. One other thing that I was reading about was um, putting two people on one ventilator just to consolidate resources. Is that something that you've read and what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I've been studying that for, for a couple of weeks now. It's quite controversial. So if you have two patients on one ventilator, one patient can accidentally cause extubation in the other patient. Meaning one patient could accidentally disconnect the ventilator from the other patient. One of the patients could affect the other patient. Of course, that risk is mitigated by using antimicrobial filters that are placed between the, the airflow between the two different patients. And you might have detrimental patient ventilator interaction from the respiratory muscles of one patient that are contracting differently than the other patient, and that may affect the ventilation of both patients. Not everyone breathes the same, so if two people are sharing one machine, it can throw things out of sync. So one of the things they do when they put two people on a ventilator is they give them a neuromuscular blockade so that their chest muscles don't work like they normally do. Everything, All the air is coming in and out from the ventilator only. Basically, you don't want patients trying to breathe on their own when they're on the ventilator. And when you try to take a patient off the ventilator, that's called weaning from mechanical ventilation, then it's more difficult when you've got the two of them because one patient might be ready to come off the ventilator and the other one isn't ready. So the American Association for Respiratory Care actually came out and recommended that putting two people on a ventilator shouldn't be done. They came out with a statement and they said that the volume going to the patients could go to the most compliant lungs. So if you have one patient whose lung is more easily inflated than the other, it could be that more gas will go to that patient than to the patient whose lung is stiffer. And they, they go on to say that monitoring the patient would be challenging, if not impossible, with two people on a ventilator. The alarm systems on a ventilator that let you know if, if the gas delivered is too small or if it's too large and or the pressures is too low or too high are not possible when you have two people on a ventilator. And how long do the COVID-19 patients typically have to be on a ventilator? Normally, a patient after major surgery would be on a ventilator for a short amount of time, maybe only five or six hours. Somebody who's on a ventilator because they have like a crushed chest injury from an auto accident might be on for three or four days. And what we're finding now is that the COVID patients are on for seven to 10 days. And that contributes to the ventilator shortage because rather than recycle a ventilator every three days, the ventilator's tied up for 10 days. It just means that you need three times as many ventilators. And for the duration of the time that the patient is on the ventilator, do they need constant monitoring? Yes, they do. And you got to keep in mind that I don't, well, I think people need to know that the mortality rate for somebody who goes into adult respiratory distress syndrome is quite high. Normally, it's around 35%, but the COVID patients seem to have even a worse mortality rate approaching 45 or 50%. And what happens is when they first go on, their lung is stiff, but it gets stiffer as they go on. And that's because the virus causes the cells in the upper airways to throw off some of the lining of the cells that fall deeper into the lungs and clog up some of the small alveoli deeper in the lungs. The virus triggers the immune system to kill its own lung cells, and then those dead cells fall into the lungs and block the alveoli, which are little air sacs that bring oxygen to your blood and take CO2 away. 
So if, if these alveoli fill up with tissue that's been shed off from the upper airways because of the virus, then it clogs up the gas exchange between the alveolus and the capillary blood. The blood can't get enough oxygen, and that causes all kinds of serious problems. And so the alveolus actually begin to collapse at that point. So they're, they're no longer inflated, they're filled with fluid. And the lung gets stiffer and becomes gradually harder for that person to ventilate. They wouldn't be able to breathe without the ventilator. But even with the ventilator, it takes more and more pressure to ventilate them. The case becomes more difficult. And before I let you go, do you have any final thoughts? We need good people to go to respiratory therapy schools. So if you're listening to this and you're looking for a career that you'll be very proud to be part of and you'll always have a job, then you should go to respiratory therapy school. Special thanks to Tom Barnes, respiratory therapist and head faculty member for the Masters of Science in the Respiratory Care Leadership Program. Sound editing and mixing by Anthony Polito. Our editor is David Filipov. From News at Northeastern, this is Litmus. For more COVID-19 stories, subscribe to our show and you'll get a notification every time we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.